0: We are in Galatians chapter 2 this morning. I invite you to turn there on your smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone that's not so smart, you have to get a Bible or bring a Bible. Bridge kids, you're dismissed. In 1855, an 18 year old boy named Dwight applied for membership at a church in Boston. To apply for church membership, he was required to appear before the deacon board. Dwight had been raised in a Unitarian church, and as such, he didn't know the Bible very well, and he really didn't understand that Jesus had died for his sins. Dwight had uh, originally come to Boston to make his fortune, and um, To do that, and this is a little bit different in our culture today, to do that, he began attending a Bible-believing church. You know, like church was a good thing back in those days. It was in the spring of that year that Dwight's Sunday school class went to Dwight's place of work in the shoe store to meet with Dwight. And on this occasion, his Sunday school teacher very humbly... um, Shared the good news about Jesus that Jesus Christ had died on the cross and paid the penalty for his sins. Dwight was encouraged to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who would save him from his own sin penalty. And Dwight did trust Christ and began to follow him. Now, the 18 year old Dwight stood before the deacon board of that church in Boston. And um, as they questioned Dwight, they began to uh, discern that Dwight didn't know the Bible very well. And one of the deacons asked him this question. He said, Dwight, what is it that Jesus did for us all and did for you that entitles him our love? And Dwight thought about it a little bit and he said, I don't know. I reckon Jesus did quite a bit for us. But I can't really think of anything in particular. And uh, that was not necessarily a great answer for Dwight. And so uh, the deacon board said, Dwight, what you really need to do is take a one-year instruction Bible course and then come back next year. And so Dwight did that. And one year later, there's Dwight standing before the deacon board one more time. And again, they interviewed him, asked him some questions, and it didn't seem like Dwight had come very far uh, in his understanding. And he seemed to be a little bit befuddled when it came to answering questions, and so um, because Dwight was so sincere, and he seemed to be so committed, the deacons let him become a member. Few people in that Boston church thought he would ever amount to much. He could barely read, his manners were poor, and his English grammar was awful. Yet it was God's infinite grace and his persevering love that this young man named D. L. Moody, or Dwight L. Moody, was transformed into one of the most effective servants of Christ in church history. Literally thousands and thousands of people placed their trust in Jesus, through D.L. Moody's evangelistic ministry. Through his ministry and influence um, came the Moody Memorial Church in downtown Chicago, which is still preaching the Word of God today. Uh, Moody Bible Institute. Um, a magazine came out, Moody Monthly Magazine, that continued until 2003. Moody Radio, uh, now a Moody Theological Seminary, and Moody Aviation Fellowship. D.L. Moody's life was transformed because he came into an understanding of God's grace through the gospel, which is really good news. It's good news for us too. It is by grace. It is by God's undeserved favor. D.L. Moody understood that. He understood that grace was a gift. He didn't, he didn't deserve it. He couldn't earn it. understood that it was God himself that paid the price. He couldn't pay the price. It was God himself who paid the price for his sin penalty, and that God did all of this just because he loves us. D. L. Moody understood that lost people matter to God, and therefore lost people matter to us. Last week, we saw a similar transformation uh, in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul was different than D.L. Moody in, in in several ways. Unlike Moody, Paul was a very knowledgeable of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Old Testament Bible. Paul was, an, was a Bible scholar. Um, and then, as you know, Paul would go on and write uh, a significant amount of the New Testament for us. Uh, the interesting thing is, though, but it's the same gospel message D.L. Moody believed, it's the same gospel message that the Apostle Paul believed and proclaimed, that Christ died for our sins as the only way of salvation. So this morning we come back to the book of Galatians and we see another chapter in the autobiographical sketch of Paul's life. And here we see that both Paul's message and his ministry are under fire. So would encourage you to follow in the outline uh, that's in your program this morning. First of all, tested the gospel under fire, verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. So let's look at verse 1. And this is a trip. A trip to Jerusalem. Then after 14 years, the Apostle Paul writes, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. So let's give a little context to this. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that he made a trip to Jerusalem three years after his conversion. Remember, we, we talked about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and Paul was a persecutor of the church, and he hated Christians, and he was putting Christians in jail. And then on one of his trips to go to Damascus to put Christians in jail, the apostle Paul, his name was Saul of Tarsus at that time, meant Jesus Christ. On the road to Damascus and his life was radically changed God literally just set him on his rear end and let him think about it and set him aside and uh, Paul began to figure this out and to follow Jesus and he was a highly committed follower of Christ so now we come 14 years after this other trip to Jerusalem so I'm guessing this is 17 years after his conversion to Christ Paul goes up to Jerusalem, and it's up because everywhere is uh, going to Jerusalem is up from pretty much everywhere just because of its altitude, and it was a high city because it's where the temple was. And he went with Barnabas, and we, we, we learn about Barnabas in the book of Acts, and uh, Barnabas apparently was an encourager. Barnabas is likely older than Paul, and, and Barnabas was a mentor to Paul, and when Paul was a brand-new Christian... Uh, he needed somebody to show him the roads, gropes, and God hooked up Paul with Barnabas, and Barnabas helped kind of take the rough edge off of Paul and uh, brought him along. And so uh, early in Paul 's travels, he travels with Barnabas. And then Paul says, "I took Titus along also." And Titus would be like uh, a young pastor that Paul is mentoring. So we have Paul's mentor, and we have, we have uh, Paul mentoring a younger uh, church leader. And Titus, guess what? That is not a Jewish name. And uh, so Titus is a Gentile Christian, it means he's a, not a Jewish Christian. Now, this is really a big deal in uh, these events, in this passage, and I'll remind you more of that in just a minute. So... Uh, Then after 14 years, they go up to Jerusalem. Oh, why Jerusalem? What's so significant about that? Well, Jerusalem is the mother church. Jerusalem is the place that Christianity got its start in Acts chapter 2. There was no Christianity before it began in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And there, the the first church leaders are raised up. And who are they? Well, they're the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are the first church leaders. And so Paul is going back to the sort of the stronghold of Christianity, and um, he he has a purpose. And we see that in verse 2. Paul says, I went in response to a revelation, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation. And I I always take this concept of revelation in a very special sense. I take it in a technical sense. Uh, God spoke literally to Paul in some way. This wasn't like uh, an impression that he got or some kind of leading that he got. This was, okay, Paul, this is what you are to do. And um, God doesn't necessarily speak to me that way, but he did on this occasion to Paul. And you have to remember, um, God did a lot of things in the New Testament period, and you th- and think about this, the New Testament scriptures hadn't been written at all. They had no direction on what they were to do other than God leading them through these key leaders, the apostles. And uh, so God told Paul to go up to Jerusalem, and he did. And he, he went there for a private meeting, and he was going to meet with esteemed leaders, and they're going to be named later, um, be Peter and John and James, James the Lord's brother. And we're going to see that in, in, in a little bit. So it's going to be a private meeting. And then he said, here's the purpose, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. I wanted to be sure that I was not running, And had not been running my race in vain. So uh, when Paul got to Jerusalem and when he had this private meeting with those leaders, he presented to them the gospel, not so that they could be saved. But he was presenting the gospel for an affirmation, for confirmation. Think about this. Paul had been really operating his ministry entirely separate of the other apostles of, the, of uh, those people who had followed Jesus the, for three years and and uh, who had received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the day the church got started. Saul of Tarsus wasn't there. Paul wasn't there. Paul wasn't a believer yet. And Paul has become a believer on the road to Damascus and he's been way outside of the Judean influence, Judea being around Jerusalem, and the church is there. And so Paul is sort of coming back and he's going, to, he's going to submit his message to the other apostles to have them weigh in. Now, Paul is not doubting that he's been off track. Paul, Paul would die for the message of the gospel. This is for. There's a lot of reasons to do this. It's because there's so many questions now what the gospel is. Do you remember what the problem had been? We brought this up already. The problem... Uh, had been that there were people who who wanted to bring in a different gospel. They, they wanted to change the message that Christ died for your sins, and that's enough. They wanted to say, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. They wanted to add something to the gospel. What they wanted them to do is to become more Jewish. You're getting too far away from the Old Testament. We need to bring you back to the Old Testament and bring you under the law of the Old Testament. You need to believe in Jesus and... You need to come under the law of the Old Testament. That's what this is all about. And that's why he submitted the gospel, because he wanted their affirmation. He wanted the church to be united. He wanted the leadership of the church to be on the same page. Verse 3, the test case. And Paul writes, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. You know, you read that, and it sounds kind of foreign. I mean... Titus not, didn't compel to be circumcised. I've never been compelled to be circumcised. You know, what, what's this all about? And uh, but this is a, a huge uh, happening in the life of the church. So Titus, this uh, non-Jewish man, he goes to Jerusalem. And by the way, they can figure that out. This guy's not a Jew. He doesn't look like a Jew. He doesn't walk like a Jew. He doesn't talk like a Jew. In fact, his name is not even Jewish, okay? So they know that Titus is not a Jewish man. And someone there, Titus, wasn't compelled to be circumcised. Somebody there put some pressure on Titus. Titus, you know, you might think you're a follower of Christ, but but you need to be circumcised too. And you're Gentile. God doesn't like that. So that's kind of the pressure they're bringing on Titus. But Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Um, Paul notes um, that Titus wasn't compelled to be circumcised. So why is this an issue? And again, it's because if we go back to Genesis chapter 17, circumcision uh, was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so from that day forward, all Jewish males were to be circumcised. uh, Children at the eighth eighth day. And uh, so if you were a Jewish person and you were a male, it was just normal for you uh, to have undergone circumcision. And um, it becomes a part of the law of the Old Testament, a requirement. And so now the false teachers, and remember we called them Judaizers, which was not a good term. They are saying, you've got to believe in Jesus and you got to be... As a symbol, you've got to be circumcised. And it's, it's, uh, if you do this, what you do is you are embracing the law of the Old Testament. So you've got to believe in Jesus and keep all of the law of the Old Testament. And, you know, again, the New Testament has not been written yet. And they're trying to figure out how do, you, how do we take the Old Testament and how do we follow Jesus and how does it all fit? And uh, the, the Apostle Paul is going to have a major part in communicating how that's going to work in the years to come. But right now, these are the early years. I'm going to take you to Acts 16.3 to another incident about circumcision. You may say, I've had enough of circumcision already, but um, let me just share another story. So think in mind that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised because it has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with being saved, Okay. Jesus died for our sins, that's enough. He paid the price. You don't do anything else to be saved. However, Timothy was another young church leader that Paul mentored. This is after the Galatian situation. And Timothy has a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And Timothy is going to have an evangelistic ministry that includes both Jews and Greeks. Now, here's what happens in verse 3. Paul wanted to take him, Timothy, along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, it sort of sounds, well, that's a little hypocritical. Paul does one thing one time, and then Paul does another. It was actually Titus on the other occasion. And then Paul has Timothy circumcised. What's that all about? Well, this wasn't... Timothy had a choice here, by the way. This was Timothy's choice. Timothy chose to to be circumcised so that he could communicate with the Jewish men, so he could proclaim the gospel to Jewish men, and they wouldn't criticize him. They wouldn't say, we're not going to follow him because he's not going to be circumcised. He's never been circumcised. Paul says, I don't want that to be... Timothy says, I don't want that to be an obstacle. I'm willing to be circumcised for the sake of Christ. So this isn't like something that was required other than it's, it's a, a decision that one person makes to limit their own freedom for the sake of the gospel so that there's no obstacles, okay? So I hope you're not highly confused after that. Verses 4 and 5, the reason this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on freedom that we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves, so it arose because there, was, there were false teachers. That they had infiltrated. And um, Paul uses an interesting concept here. On our freedom, we have in Christ. And they wanted to make us slaves. So, just to restate, the gospel is the gospel of grace. It's God's unmerited favor. It means uh, he did, God did the work and that we can do nothing... It's grace, by grace. Um, There's nothing to add to it. So some people have wanted to add to the gospel. They've wanted to add works. They've wanted to say, you need to believe in Jesus and keep the law. Believing in Jesus is not enough. Okay? So that's the problem. And um, Paul says, we didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The gospel is under fire. And Paul is working hard to bring clarity and, and to show that he is proclaiming the same gospel. He says, um, this group came in to spy on their freedom that they have, and this group wanted to make them slaves. Now, here's the idea of making slaves. How can this, How can you, Paul become a slave? And what he's saying here is, Okay, the gospel made me free. Sin's forgiven. The gospel freed him from the penalty of the law. Now he's saying, why would we go back? Why would we accept this free gift and now embrace that we have to keep the law and add something to it that's not there? It's like putting a huge, major burden on everybody. Your salvation was paid for by somebody else, but now you've got to pay for it yourself. And, and, and you become a slave to this w- doing good works. And that's what Paul is clarifying. How big a deal is this? Let me just remind us Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. We saw this the first week. Here's what the Apostle Paul thought about all this. He says, but even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Scripture says, if you mess with the gospel, may you be under God's curse. If you change the gospel, may you be under God's curse. This is how big of a deal this is. This is way bigger than a June 25th Supreme Court decision. This is huge for the church, changing the message of our salvation. So, a uh, simple lesson here. The message of the gospel will always be tested. You can count on that. The message of the gospel will always be tested. The message of the gospel was tested in the first century right off the bat, the message of the gospel has been tested in every century, every decade. And there are uh, all kinds of ways that people have sought to change the gospel. And um, so I guess I just don't ever think that we're like in worse times than others when it comes to communicating the the gospel. Um, Some people have said you need to believe in Jesus and and be baptized to be saved. Well, I'm baptized, but I got baptized... As a follower of Christ. I got baptized because I'm a follower of Christ. I got baptized because I've been saved from the penalty of my sin. I did not get baptized so that I could be saved. Some have said, believe in Jesus and keep the sacraments. Some churches have a different number of sacraments, things that you're to do to be so a so-called good Christian. Believe in Jesus and do the sacraments. That's not the gospel. Um, some people have said you need to believe in Jesus and do good works. And that's not the gospel. I do. I want to do good works because I want to please Jesus because I'm a follower of Christ and my sins are forgiven. Not because, I don't do good works so that I can be saved. Um, cults have been raised up all through the centuries, and they come up with their own versions of the Bible and their own version of the gospel. The gospel is under fire because... If you think about this, if you were the enemy, if, if you were Satan himself, what would you do to interrupt Jesus' command to go and make disciples of all the world? Mess with people, mess with the message. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the enemy has been messing, messing with what God told his people and distorting and changing the very words that God has said. So just count on that. So the gospel has been tested. We see in the second part, the gospel confirmed. Approved, the gospel confirmed, verses 6 through 10. There's a meeting in verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God, no, God does not show favoritism. They, had, they added nothing to my message. So Paul further describes the meeting that he had in Jerusalem with these leaders, Uh, and he says uh, they were held in high esteem, and and that would be rightfully so, that the early church leaders, the apostles, were held in high esteem, and it almost seems here like the apostle Paul says, you know, maybe they were held in too high sometimes. Maybe maybe people thought they were like way more important than just being men, and um, he says, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. He just reminds us of that truth. And then he says, they added nothing to my message. Um, Paul was not impressed by any human opinion of these leaders. And uh, the outcome of the meeting was that these leaders added nothing to Paul's message. So they got it, they, they came together and they met. And the apostle Paul came from um, Syria and from the Galatian area. And he he'd uh, he'd been gone 17 years 14 since his last visit and he communicates the message that he's been preaching to the gentiles and their lives have been turned around and churches have been established all over in these last 14 and 17 years because of the apostle paul's ministry and he's comparing his message now with the church leaders in Jerusalem and guess what there's nothing to add to paul's message it's good It's it. It's a right. It's right on target. Uh, It's the same message that Peter got up and preached in Acts chapter 2 and the church began in Jerusalem, that Christ died for our sins. In Acts chapter 15, a little bit later, there's a description of... um, This crucial time in Jerusalem. We read this a couple of weeks ago, but let's follow this through a little bit further. Here's the problem that they're facing in Jerusalem. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. There's the false gospel. Believe in Jesus, be circumcised, be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate. So this is what's happened when false doctrine enters. There becomes people who, some of you don't like conflict. There is going to be conflict about truth. And we need godly men and women who can dialogue about truth and who understand truth and who know the scriptures. They want to, they want to keep the scriptures uh, pure. and, and uh, So we need people who can dispute in a godly way. Next, next slide. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and you don't need a map for that. And they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Next slide. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So there's that report. This is what we're doing. Paul submitted the gospel. Verse, next slide. When some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, the apostles and elders meant to consider this question. So this is what there's, there's a meeting and discussion about right here. Is this a valid point? The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Notice where this comes from, verse 5. Some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders highly trained in the Old Testament scriptures. These are Pharisees who have become Christians. Christians. They've placed their faith in Christ. They're now part of the church, but they have such a heavily influence of the Old Testament, they want to lay it on the Gentiles too, without really good discernment here. But um, So this is the problem that's, that's happening, and this is uh, what's being faced. Um, and I'm going to just make a... Paul does this almost like an aside In Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, God does not show favoritism. And here's the lesson. God does not judge people by outward appearance. We're just going to take an application from this. This wasn't like the main feature of this section here, but let's just look at this for a minute. Uh, God does not judge people by outward appearance. You already knew that. But sometimes we forget on what the implications are. God judges people according to truth, and their hearts. What's in their heart? And so, you know, a practical question is, is your heart right with God right now? Whether you are a believer or not, is your heart right with God this morning? When when we say that uh, God doesn't show favoritism and God doesn't judge people by outward appearance, God does not place... Value on people because some people are maybe better looking than others. God doesn't judge because some people are fat or skinny or just right. God doesn't care about those issues. God doesn't judge people because they are too tall or too short or just right. God doesn't judge people because of the color of their skin. God doesn't give anybody credit for having a perfect complexion. God doesn't care about your educational level or your income level. God doesn't care if you have a a beautiful home or not. God doesn't care if you're smarter than everyone else. God is concerned about your heart condition. Sometimes we just forget that. Sometimes we think we're more valuable if we're whatever. God cares about our hearts and our relationship with him. And whether we're humble and receptive to his word. And whether we follow his word and do what he says. That's what God really cares about. And it's a reminder that God offers the gospel to all people. God offers grace to all people. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, writes this, There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. There is nothing we can do to make God love us less. Just remember that. He loves you. Period. Okay, back to Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, the outcome. And we have recognition, verses 7 and 8. On the contrary, they, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel, Paul writes, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been uh, to the circumcised. This is a huge conclusion. This is the kind of scripture you come across and you read it and it, you're tempted to be bored to death. This is a huge uh, conclusion in the early church. They recognized that Paul a whole other wing of the church that didn't exist in Jerusalem had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel. And they recognized the uniqueness of this and that Paul seems to have a ministry to the Gentiles, which is really hard for some of those Jewish Christians because they're not sure what they think of the Gentiles. They've got to process that yet. And Paul got this, and Paul's a Jewish man, and he just embraces this, and he just has a heart to reach this uh, non-Jewish group of people, which is the rest of the world, pretty much. And then, at the same time, they recognize that Peter has been entrusted the gospel message to take to the circumcised, who? The Jewish people. Two different ministries. They're on equal par. One is not more important than the other. You know, the temptation would be, well, Peter's ministry is more important because Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, and Peter is trying to reach the Jewish people, and they're like more important. Not so. Not true. Verse 8, For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work in me, Paul says, as an apostle to the Gentiles. God was working in both ministries. God's hand of grace was on both of those ministries. Verse 9, the acceptance. James, Cephas, and John. Now, when you read through the Gospels, it's often Peter, James, and John. Different group of people. Peter, James, and John are from the 12 disciples. Peter is mentioned first because because he was the leader of the group. James and John were brothers. Now, uh, Paul writes here, James, Cephas, and John. James is not the James of the Gospels. This is James, the Lord's brother, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, who came to faith in Christ, apparently after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. It's Jesus' brother, half-brother biologically, James' mother would have been Mary, the same mother that Jesus had. James' father would have been Joseph, okay? And he didn't believe in Jesus while Jesus was alive. But after Jesus was resurrected, he comes to faith in Jesus. James, the other apostle who was a brother of John, is already dead by the time we get to Galatians chapter 2. He was, uh, he was killed earlier in the book of Acts. Cephas is Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic name for uh, Peter. And this is John the same. So Peter is the Peter who writes 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and he's a uh, leader and he's an apostle. And John is the Apostle John. He's not John the Baptist. He's the, he's the John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. These are the pillars. Esteemed as pillars, meaning They're foundational leaders in the church. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And so ever since then, Christians have been shaking with the right hand. The right hand of fellowship. This was another really big deal. Call it, we could say a Kodak moment if you remember what Kodaks were. Like, we need to have a picture. This is way bigger than John F. Kennedy shaking Martin Luther King's hand. This was a public recognition of the acceptance of Paul's ministry with Peter's ministry. Uh, This was not a private handshake. This was in the city so that everybody could see. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus are welcome. They agreed we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcises. And so they walk away in unity with focused ministries and recognition that this is the gospel. Verse 10, there's a request, and they all ask that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Remembering the poor specifically would refer to the poor in Jerusalem and especially the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Why? Well, for one thing, during this time, we already know from the book of Acts, there'd been a great famine in the land of Judea which meant there weren't enough crops. And so that would have had a major impact on everybody there. We also know that the Christians in Jerusalem and the Judean area were, had been heavily persecuted and uh, their property had been confiscated and, and some of them had gone out of business because people wouldn't trade with them because they became Christians. And so you, you have people who are really struggling struggling financially and the apostles tell Paul, Paul, remember those poor. And what we find in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Paul has several excursions raising funds for the poor in Jerusalem. And when you think about this, Paul's the guy who had some of those people put in jail. Paul's the guy who had some of those people's property confiscated. You know, Paul even oversaw the death of some of those people and if, uh, Some somebody in your family was killed because of Paul. You might have lost an income source. Um, Paul had a lot to do this, and now Paul is responding by helping with the needs of the poor. Um, This whole concept was taught in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter fifteen, verse eleven. And the scripture says, there will always be poor people in the land, meaning in the land of Israel here. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So in the Old Testament, God's people were to be open-handed. Instead of being tight-fisted, they were to be open-handed. They were to be generous to the poor in their land, in the land of Israel. God's people were to care for God's people. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31, and the book of Proverbs is about wisdom. We all need wisdom. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. When we're generous with the poor, we honor God. God's people should be kind to the poor. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 17 Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. Again, God's people should be kind to the poor. Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. So God says if you're going to be stingy, expect God to be stingy with you. And then Proverbs 22, verse 9 says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. Generous people share with the poor. And here's the lesson. God wants all believers to practice generosity to the poor. God wants his people to practice generosity to the poor. So, practical question. Do you practice generosity to the poor? And I'm going to start by commending you for your generosity to give to the students of the Eau Claire School District um, who are homeless and who need warm clothing. It's been amazing to see how you've responded in generosity to give to that. And that's what we're talking about here, thinking about the needs of the poor and doing something for the poor. Um, about once a month, it, we usually do this on Communion Sunday. We do it just sort of out of habit and tradition to sort of let you know. We have a mercy fund at the bridge. And that's a designated fund on top of your regular giving that we use when people give to it. We use to help uh, needs of people in our church family who have financial need and people outside of their church family that have financial need. And uh, we've helped people with medical bills. We've helped people with car repairs. We've helped people with rent. We help people with gas. It's just whatever the need is that we are aware of, Uh, we have that because of the Mercy Fund. And we have that because you give to the Mercy Fund. And I just want to um, encourage you to think about that Giving to the under-resource is a very legitimate thing to do with your own money. And I would encourage you to think about when you, when you come to a time, like we're, we're coming to the end of the year and we evaluate our finances at the end of the year and we rethink the year ahead. But take some time at some point and evaluate, okay, I think you should give to your church first. I think that's a biblical concept. On top of that, What will you do for the poor? And think about, can you set aside something, whether it's a a monthly thing or periods in the year, depending on how your income stream works, where you would set aside something to give to the poor, like the Mercy Fund, including giving to the homeless students. Some of you sponsor children. That's an awesome way where you're giving to the poor. Team World Vision, when we help provide clean water in Africa, that's giving to the poor. So just encouraging you. It's important. It's valid. And uh, we should be involved in. So Galatians chapter 2. The gospel uh, was tested and the gospel is confirmed. And you can expect the gospel is going to be under fire until Jesus comes. God is not, does not play favorites. And he cares about the poor. Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Father, uh, for Scripture. And thank you that you provide truth week by week and uh, to instruct us and encourage us to help us in our growth. Thank you for the gospel and forgiveness of sins. Father, may we never... Forget the impact of the gospel. May we never forget your grace or take it for granted. May we seek to live for you. May we grow in our love for you for Jesus' sake. Amen.